The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.deroshi-meyer.org. It's a delight to be with you. Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Last three weeks together, we looked at the introduction, got a picture of how the prophet works, a little bit of tools for how to interpret the prophets, and we got to see a beautiful picture of Jesus. And now we come to the formal the formal beginning after the introduction of this book. Here's what we read. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord that Isaiah the son of Amos saw, he saw a word. Figure that one out. He's a seer. He saw the word of God that we're reading, however that was, whether it was a flying scroll or a vision of a person speaking to him. And he saw it concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which is where he lives. Here's what we read. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge, the na- judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for your word, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I ask that you would work in this place that we would take comfort from very old words and find hope in them. Let us meet Jesus this morning. He is our leader and our Savior, and our trust is in Him and not in any mere man. So help me help these before me receive from Your truth that is unchanging and unswerving, forever true. In your name, amen. All right, here's my main idea that I I see in this passage that we're going to unpack in the next bit. In the latter days, the nations will gather to the exalted Zion where they will enjoy justice and peace. In the latter days, you see that in verse 2. Have you ever been asked, are we living in the latter days? Are we living in the end times? 
in the latter days, no mention of the Jews here, the nations, the nations will gather to an exalted Zion where God is seated on His throne, His law will go forth, and peace will reign. Justice will be worked. How does that relate to what's happening today? Sounds pretty good. My wife was reading this. She started Isaiah a few weeks ago. I don't know, a month ago. She's like, wow, no more weapons, just gardening tools. And it sounded pretty good. Last time we were together, we saw at the end of chapter 1, verse 29, all the rebels shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And yet, in the day that Isaiah is envisioning, there's going to be need for all those who are gathered to the great garden of God, where he is seated on his throne. Everyone's going to need implements, not of war, but of gardening in order to uh, make flourish all of the fruitfulness that God's going to be producing in this new creation. So what we read right off the bat is that there's going to be this great ingathering, and it will happen in the latter days. Look at verse 2 with me. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Usually when you add a sentence on a high point, it sounds like you're going to keep going, but I wanted to stop there, sorry. Be lifted up above the hills. So are we supposed to picture this transformed geography, or is it talking about something metaphorically? Think about how Isaiah chapter 40 starts. The valleys will be raised up, the mountains will be brought low, and there will be a messenger proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. Who was that messenger? John the Baptist. That's what the New Testament says. And yet we don't read about any geographical transformations. What we read about is that the way is made clear, wide open, for people to run to the one that John the Baptist was pointing to. And who was that? Jesus. Jesus. So, the location is specified as God's mountain dwelling. In Genesis chapter 2, we don't read the word mountain, but we see a mountain displayed. Anybody remember what what it is in Genesis chapter 2 that would make me think that there's a mountain displayed in this sanctuary of God where He enjoys relationship with man. What in the text tells us we're looking at a mountain? There's four rivers flowing out of Eden that go to the four parts of the globe and give life to everything. Now, the waters are flowing down. As we're going to see, the people are flowing up. The exact same word of a river in flow is what we're going to see at the end of verse 2. And they're flowing up the mountain toward the presence of God. This unnatural but God-generated reality, when He sets Himself up in the center of the world in a very distinctive way, it's going to be massive attraction. He will draw people in. 
The first mountain was in Eden. It was the central sanctuary that gets lost and everybody gets kicked out of this garden sanctuary presence of God. And then the whole goal is what Revelation 2.7 says, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We want to get back into the garden and the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. We want to get back in and, and how do we do it? We want to enjoy the fruitfulness that is promised, that Isaiah anticipates. Not a vineyard that isn't producing, but one that is ever filled with ripe grapes. Look at how the promised land, what the Bible calls Zion, is displayed. Right after the waters part and Israel walks through the Red Sea, they sing a song. Here's what they're singing. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, namely the people that he's delivered. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O sovereign one, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever. They're going to enjoy God's presence and he will be king over all. And and the promise is that he's gathering them into his mountain. Now, if you've read Greek mythology, you know that's the place of the gods. Well, this is a corrective to all the thoughts of the world. There is only one ultimate mountain, only one ultimate God. He's king over all. Whatever happens on Tuesday, no fears in this room. He's still on the throne now and early Wednesday morning when all the tallies are brought in. And the vision here was that when they arrived in this picture, remember the promised land is like a picture of the Garden of Eden. And just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of their garden, so Israel, who was supposed to be and do what Adam was supposed to be and do, would ultimately be kicked out of their garden. We call it the exile. But that was just a picture of a more ultimate garden that Isaiah, we saw, envisions, is longing for. But at the center of it is God's presence on a mountain. Turn with me over to chapter 4 of Isaiah. There's five mountaintop texts in the book of Isaiah. Here's the first two of them. The one that we're looking at today, and then this one. Anybody want to read for me verses 2 through 6? It's going to begin saying, in that day. That day is the day of the Lord when He brings judgment on His world and brings peace to His world. It's the day of the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was what was on the seventh day in the Garden of Eden. God rested from all His work. But this isn't only a testimony of what was, but what should be. That the fall didn't displace God's sovereignty, but it did destroy the peace that God had with His world. And so God starts working again. And Jesus says... I and my Father are working. To what end? To bring about the kingdom. To reestablish the garden sanctuary of the Lord. And the image here is that on the day of the Lord, 
when he reestablishes the ultimate goal, Israel was living a six days plus one, six days plus one, heading toward a goal of Sabbath, that when God establishes, when they are finally arrive at that day, when all evil is put down, when peace is restored, when justice is established, they will enjoy peace with God again. And it will be eternal Sabbath. Chapter 4, 2 through 6. It's that day. That day when evil is destroyed and peace comes. What? Somebody want to read this for us? Verses 2 through 6. Good and loud. What a picture. The cloud by day, smoke and shining flame of fire by night. What does that recall in your mind? The Exodus. The journey of God tabernacling over His people at the temple. But now, now the cloud is not just over the tabernacle. Indeed, it's spread out as if all of Jerusalem has become the very tabernacling place of God. It reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 3, 16 through 18, where it says, in that future day of the new covenant, nobody will remember the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, that was just the box the picture throne where God's presence resided between the cherubim. But in that future day, the Ark of the Covenant will be no more, nor will it be remembered, because all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God. Remember, the Holy of Holies was where God sat on His throne. And then there was a distinguishing, this is why we have a temple, a distinguishing between different levels of holiness, so that there was the most holy place, which is the Holy of Holies, and then there was the holy place where only the priests could come, and then there was a holy place or the court where the common people could come in, and that's where the altar of burnt offering was. So anybody who wanted to come in to encounter the presence of God had to come through the altar. But the throne was still out of their reach. But now... The image is that all of Jerusalem has become the very place where the canopy of God's glory cloud is hovering. All of Jerusalem. And everyone who's gathered there, it says in verse 2 of chapter 4, the survivors of Israel. And then it says, those who are left in Zion, verse 3, who remain in Jerusalem, all of them will be called holy. In that future day, when peace reigns, when the branch of the Lord is beautiful. Now this is our first glimpse of this branch. But He, did you hear that? He is going to show up all throughout the rest of the book. This beautiful branch from which the garden of God will grow. And those who are here will be fully cleansed. No more sin. Now in this mountaintop text, it says the survivors of Israel are there. But turn with me back to chapter 2. Who's there in chapter 2? Who's gathering in, being drawn in to this elevated Zion where God's presence is seen and savored? Who's there? All the nations. They're they're coming into Jerusalem, the very place that God will establish as His sanctuary. Not 
a city with a sanctuary, but the entire city being the sanctuary. And all who were there actually as if each one was a high priest. Not just one time a year getting to go through the curtain and enjoying the glory presence, but now this glory presence is over everything and everyone is within the Holy of Holies delighting in the presence of their God. The question is, is the, are the latter days of two verse, chapter 2 verse 2 the prelude for in that day. And I'm most prone to think that in Isaiah, that day is a general period that has overlapped with the latter days, isn't necessarily the um, I think by the end of my uh, the end of the morning you'll see how I understand the two overlap. The trick is that the trick is that there's an already but not yet reality to this day. Yep, latter days and last days are the same, same Hebrew phrase. When we get into the New Testament, there's a couple different phrases that are used, but they seem to be referring to the same reality. So in the Greek text, that the same Greek term, Greek phrase, is used throughout the Old Testament Except in the book of Daniel, it changes from latter days to last hour in the Greek Old Testament. And then we come into the New Testament and we read things that are either citing directly the Hebrew text or when citing the book of Daniel, it doesn't say latter days, it says last hour. (laughs) So up till this point, up till this point in our Bibles, that phrase latter days has showed up four times. So we're just going to look at all four really quick. And what do we learn about the latter days? Here's what we learn. Number one, it's the time when the conquering star will rise. Remember, God took Abraham out. How will I know that I'll have, that the, that the offspring of promise will come? And God said, look at the stars. All of them are reminders to you that one day a single star will rise. Here's how Balaam put it in the Numbers Oracle. Come and I will let you know, Balak, what this people Israel will do to your people Moab in the latter days. Now Moab, remember, Balak king of Moab hired Balaam the prophet to bring a curse on Israel. Well, that's an image of what the serpent is all about. The evil one is wanting to destroy Israel steal, kill the people of God. He started it in the garden, and he continued it, and he manifests himself through different individuals throughout all of history. One of them was Balak. Curse, curse. That's what Balak wanted to do, and God turned all the curses into blessing. Here's one of the blessings. So when he declares judgment on Moab, it seems as though he's looking beyond the physical people Moab to something represented by Moab, bigger than Moab. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So that's from from Balaam's perspective. This is still far off. A star shall come out of Jacob. 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Does that image put anything in your mind from the early chapters of Genesis? An offspring that will bruise the head of the serpent. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of Israel. A conquering star. That's going to happen in the latter days. Number two, Deuteronomy 4. The inauguration of new covenant restoration will happen in the latter days. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days. That's how Deuteronomy chapter 30, which talks about circumcision of the heart. God's going to circumcise people's hearts in that future time. This is the exact phrase that starts out. When all these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curse. So there's a period of blessing, a period of curse. What comes after curse? In the Old Testament, what's anticipated? Blessing, curse, restoration blessing. Exactly. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is merciful. This is the phrase that opens up Deuteronomy chapter 30 which Paul in Romans 2 says is being fulfilled through the church. Hearts circumcised by God's Spirit. Already happening through Jesus. And the very base level, you can't get any lower than this. Why is it that people in that day of heart circumcision hear the Word and it awakens new life in them? So that they obey. Why do they hear and obey? Hear the voice. Why do they act? Because the Lord is merciful. The very basis of the new covenant grace is the mercy of God and nothing else. The only reason you and I come to God is because the Lord is merciful. And this awakening will happen in the latter days. The destruction of Israel and exile. Deuteronomy 30, this is the third time it shows up. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the latter days, ESV, in the days to come, but it's the same exact Hebrew phrase, in the latter days, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the works of your hands. Now, I just realized this is actually the fourth one, third one, second one. The first one happens in Genesis 49 when God, through at the death of Jacob, declares this is what will happen at the latter days. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That the Judah ruler will rise in the latter days. So, the latter days, up to this point in Isaiah, is the day when the, it's the rise of the conquering star, the inauguration of the new covenant restoration, the destruction of Israel. And then at the same time as Isaiah, maybe 10 years before him, Hosea 3.5 openly says, 
This is the period of the new Exodus during the reign of the new David. This is latter days phenomena. Afterward, the children of Israel, that is, after their exile, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. This is not the original David. He's been dead and his body has been corrupted in the grave. No, this is the new David that was hoped for, the son of David who'd be greater than David. The one to whom in Psalm 110, David calls his Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus says, Who's the son of? Whose son is the Christ? And they say, it's the son of David. Well, if he was David's son, why did David call him Lord? This David will be their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So that's what we've got so far coming into the book of Isaiah, so that when he says, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will rise... The nations will be drawn in. Already, as we're reading our Old Testaments, it's associated itself with both judgment and the period of restoration hope associated with this coming King Deliverer. We're going to come back to latter days and look at it in the New Testament a little bit after we get a little bit further in our passage. Let's look further. God's raised up. His mountain is high, which I don't think means geography, but it's talking about a reality wherein everyone who's part of this group will recognize his supremacy over all things. He will be reestablished. Remember, on the seventh day, God sat... God rested. This wasn't a rest of laziness. This was a rest of sovereignty. He had done all his work. Everything was at peace with him, and he was able to just sit on his throne at peace with all that he had made. The fall disrupted the peace, but didn't disrupt the sovereignty. But then he inaugurates, in that moment his mission of reestablishing global peace. Throughout the rest of Isaiah, we read about this ingathering a number of different times. For example, in Isaiah 19, in that day, that future day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of restoration, there will be a highway from Egypt all the way to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. This is a picture of of transnational allegiance to one God, where the blessing of God will have gone beyond the one people and just exploded to the rest of the world. Where Abraham will have moved from a father of a single nation, Israel, to a father of a multitude of nations, This is bigger than Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, and Uriah the Hittite entering into the people of God. Because all of them became Israelites in that moment, and Abraham didn't expand beyond being a father of one nation. Now we're talking about Egyptians and Assyrians 
representative of the two major world powers and all who are vassals underneath them gathering and submitting to one king who's bigger than all. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. This is bigger than the Jews, but it includes them. It's gone beyond them, though, to invite the nations from the farthest north to the farthest south. Isaiah 56, I I love this one. You'll see the echo of our passage. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, those are outsiders who did not accept circumcision. That's what's so fascinating. There's two different words for the alien resident who was a foreigner who undergoes circumcision and becomes an Israelite. The foreigners are those who didn't engage in that activity. But all of a sudden, the foreigners will join themselves to the Lord, staying distinct from Israel, but underneath the same king. They'll join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him. That's the word for priestly service. The foreigners will be involved in this. To love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it sitting underneath the supremacy of God, trusting Him for daily provision, enjoying Sabbath rest underneath His sovereignty, holding fast my covenant. These ones I will bring to my holy mountain. That's Isaiah 2. These ones will gather in. God will be the mover. He'll be drawing them in. And that's the only way they could flow uphill. He'll be pulling them in. The the amount of gravitational force will be unprecedented and irresistible. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those I already gathered. This sounds like Jesus saying, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Now, you'll remember how I drew the picture of the downtown uh, cityscape on the board a few weeks ago. And I think when we read statements like their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, I think we have to understand, looking out ahead, Isaiah is... Whoa, that's a crooked building. Isaiah is here looking out and he's he's talking about sacrifices, burnt offerings, sacrifices that are going to be made in the future and already we've seen Isaiah 53 
where he will offer himself as a guilt offering, this servant king. So I'm not certain whether... Did I push a button? There we go. We've already seen Isaiah 53. When he says this burnt offerings and sacrifices, I'm not certain whether we're supposed to see sin as part of those and they're being subsumed ultimately in the sacrifice of Christ as he's down here looking ahead, but we're up here looking from a different angle. We're looking from a different angle. He's, he's here looking at the cityscape and he doesn't know which comes first or exactly how it's all going to play out. Whereas we're getting a bigger perspective with Jesus already here as the ultimate sacrifice. Or are these burnt offerings and sacrifices what the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 says all of us offer every single day? Sacrifices of praise. I'm not certain. There is um, different, different portraits that he gives identify the presence of evil and other ones portray absolute perfection. It does lay, I think, the, as he's looking ahead, what it lays the possibility of is a type of overlap where new creation has been started and yet old creation is still continuing. I think he's anticipating a... So I've, I've... No, I didn't get to talk about this one. Last spring when we were doing big and small questions of the faith, this was one of my questions. And depending on how quickly we get through Isaiah, I might be able to do it at the end of the year. But my understanding of the Sabbath is that it was always understood by Israel to be the goal to which they were seeking. It was why it was the sign of their covenant. The Sabbath was their sign. So six days plus one. Six days plus one. What it created within them was a pattern of life wherein they were goal-oriented. They were seeking an ultimate goal where Sabbath, from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, would be reestablished on a global scale. Through them all the world would be blessed. Through them, the world would be blessed. But they also understood that it would not happen until the single male royal offspring came. He would be the instrument through which the blessing would come. So as he's looking ahead, he's anticipating that in that future day, Sabbath will be enjoyed. And those who are participating underneath that reign of God will be considered Sabbath keepers. The reason I don't think Sunday is Sabbath, not only because we don't see any evidence of such a switch in the New Testament, is that Jesus comes proclaiming He's brought Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He secures the rest. And now Sabbath is where we're living. It is seven days a week. And it was inaugurated on a Sunday morning. And that's why we gather on Sunday morning to celebrate this is the day that hope was birthed. This is the day that rest was secured. This is the day that victory over sin and death and judgment and darkness was realized. And it reminds us in an overlap period of the ages 
that, okay, Christ has won, and we need that fuel to move us into the rest of the week. So in some pattern, it's a 1 plus 6 now, but the 1 plus 6 that we're living in is not Sabbath and then everything else. It's rather, this is the day that Sabbath was inaugurated, and we remind ourselves in a place like this of what Christ has secured for us seven days a week as we, hope the fut- as we await the future. Uh, the, it would be not, um, you'd be profaning the Sabbath if you failed to surrender to Jesus. You might be profaning the Sabbath if you, um, I'd have to consider and look at this, the idea of You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where people were eating of the Lord's Supper unworthily and because of that they were actually sick and some of them were dying, but they were real believers. Would that be a type of profaning the Sabbath or is there no category for Christians to be profaning the Sabbath? What I'm certain of is that Sabbath breaking will not result for any real believer. When I say Sabbath breaking, I mean failure to depend on God wholly, perfectly every day of our lives? Oh, no, I, and that's where I'll, 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 I'll bring, I'll come back, uh, Lord willing, at the end of the spring semester, address this issue and unpack um, the significance of living in the Sabbath seven days a week and what it means to move beyond the picture to the reality. But I think you can knit right now. (laughs) If you do so dependently. This is the last chapter in Isaiah. I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, to, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and on chariots and on litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them, some of these from the nations also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. All the while I'm reading these texts, you should be thinking, how does that relate to today? You are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people of His own possession, that you might proclaim His excellencies, Him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. The reason for the ingathering, look with me now, what's drawing them in? Why do they want to go? What was the purpose of their journey at the end of or in the middle of verse 3. What does it say? So here's a people that recognizes we need some instruction. 
We need some guidance. What does that imply about their context? If they're attracted to what God is offering, what does it imply about their context? They want something more. They need something better. They need something that works. So the world is offering all kinds of guidance. And yet these people have said, God's way, I want that to be my way. And they're being drawn in. Specifically, at the end of verse 3, it gives clarity to why they're going. Why it is that this... Mountain is exalted in their eyes, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here's God later in the book. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Not just to the people. To the peoples, plural. Do you want to be a part of it? This is one of the reasons why verse 5 says what it does. The Jews haven't been mentioned in these verses. But verse 5 says, Oh, house of Jacob, come, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Stop running to your, and, and living like a withered oak tree. Come to where there's hope. Come to where there's help. Don't let the nations judge you by their obedience, by their attraction to what is really beautiful. And you fail to to participate. This is where Isaiah goes. We don't see it in Isaiah 2, but we see it a lot if we keep reading. He unpacks, through whom does God give this law? He unpacks, by whom will God work justice? Will God work peace? In that day, the root of Jesse, who's that? He's the one who's earlier called the branch. He's the root of Jesse, that's David's father, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him, of him shall the nations inquire. Where is he? Who is he? I need a savior. Where do I find him? His resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 42, talking about this same royal servant figure. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Right now, Jesus is not tired, even though the nations continue to rage. He will not grow weary until all is accomplished. The nations scoff, but God laughs, says Isaiah chapter 2. He says to his son, Today, today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And you will strike them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. He will not grow faint and he will not be discouraged. So don't you be discouraged. If you're looking at the, 
at what sits before us. Injustice, lack of integrity, brokenness. He hasn't grown tired. Just follow him. If you get weary, he'll carry you. It's the days of Christ and his church that are the latter days. Remember when the Spirit pours out at Pentecost? Peter says, this is what Joel talked about. Joel does not use the phrase latter days, but many other prophets do. And Peter adds it into the quotation. This is what God said would happen in the last days. That I would pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That's latter days phenomena. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, are you living in the latter days? They started 2,000 years ago at the resurrection of the Son of God who by God's power, all of us, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're not there yet. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your fathers, so what? So that faith and hope, I shouldn't be typing. I, Dr. Nacelli, he just says, why are you typing it? Cut and paste, cut and paste. <laughs> so that your faith and hope are in God. It started at the resurrection. Look back at our passage. It started at the resurrection. Wait, you're telling me that Zion has been elevated? Some of you have made a trip to Jerusalem. How many haven't made a trip to Jerusalem? And you're telling me I'm among this group? That's what I'm saying. You have already come to Mount Zion. Already, right now, we are there, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. Right now, already happening. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Therefore, let us be grateful that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What's happening this week is small. If our freedoms are taken away here, that is small. They've been taken away for centuries all over the world. And the church stands because we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's where our hope is. This has already happened. A law has gone out from Jerusalem. It's embodied in the person of Jesus. We're making disciples, calling people in, drawing people in. And what are we supposed to do? Teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. 
We offer to God acceptable worship. We do so with reverence and awe because He is a consuming fire. This moves us to missions because that fire will not stay quiet forever, but it will rise and it will burn completely. All that was not already burned in the cross. The servant is the one who would work justice. He shall judge between the nations, says our passage. This God, who the later book identifies with the man, shall decide disputes between the peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. This isn't already all happened. But it's happened in this room. At least it's supposed to be. And it's our hope for the future. A bruised reed he will not break. This is the one, the servant king. He enters in. I was a rebel of this kingdom. And he overcame my resistance. He softened my heart. He can do it with the ones you love. Don't stop praying. He is not growing weary until all is accomplished, until all justice is established. He will bring it. It may be after the United States is a dream, is a memory, but He will bring it. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth. This isn't just what will be, it's what He's already started, as we're going to see. Jesus was speaking at the Mount of Transfiguration when a bright cloud overshadowed Him. A voice from the cloud said, This is My Son, listen to Him. He's got the law. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. What am I talking about? The law of Christ. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. A law will go out from Jerusalem. And it's gone out. And we call people to submit to it. We're His ambassadors being spread out all over the world. His presence working in and through us. The temple ever expanding. Jerusalem covering the earth. Readying for war. When God will enter in and do a complete house cleaning. Just like He did in the conquest. The troops are being spread out. But right now, we don't have sword in our hand. We have a message of suffering and a ministry of sharing. Proclaiming the terms of peace before the great day of the Lord comes. But for all of us, it's already come. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our past. So we've entered into the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And all we're doing is awaiting for the day when it will come to earth. uh, Revelation 21. Jesus is the one who brings us rest, peace. This is already ours. So that even when the sea of the storm and the brokenness is all around us, 
that we can have this, this grounded foundation built upon the rock so that we can keep trusting. Come to me, all you who, are la- all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and gentle of heart, and you can find rest. No more war. No more tension. Even though it's all around us, somehow we can be sheltered internally. Though they kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. We fear the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not blow out. Until he brings justice to victory. God's just citing Isaiah 42 and bringing it right into the ministry of Jesus. This is what he came to do. Justice. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more will we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Consider that. It would be unjust of God, hear that, it would be unjust of God to not forgive you and me in light of what Christ has done. The wrath of God fully satisfied for all who will believe, not because of anything that we have brought to the table but simply because of His mercy. Mercy. And that's working justice in our day. Isn't it attractive? Oh God, work justice for me. And He says, I've given you Jesus. Proclaim it. He's here to work justice right now on behalf of those who are His enemies. Or he will work justice in the future against those who are his enemies. God has completely purged Zion of its filth. The heavenly Jerusalem has no filth in it. And that's where our citizenship is, it's where we are identified. We move ahead in this world, on this earth, in this country, at this time in history, right now, with a God who is fully for us in Jesus. The only sins we can defeat are ones He's already pardoned. He is on our side, completely holy, purged, no condemnation. Now I dread. And He's instructing us, guiding us, Follow me, Jesus said. He's gathering right now the complete number of nations who will join the survivors of Israel. And they're still being identified. True ethnic Jews coming to Jesus. In gathering all of them to magnify the Lord in Zion. And Zion will come to earth. There before the throne of God, all these saints, they serve Him day and night in His temple. 
They're right in the midst of it. They're, they're there in the Holy of Holies, enjoying His presence. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence, hungering no more, thirsting no more, sun not striking them, no scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This peace, no more war, enjoying peace, is something that is already, but is not yet. It's a battle for us to remind ourselves what is true. That God's on the throne. He's drawn us into Himself. We are His and He is ours. So just let, your, let this text remind you of what is true. And let it carry you through overcoming the anxieties, the worries, the fears. He reigns already. And we're already there. This is not our home. That is our home. And one day, the place that He has prepared will be filled and we'll never have to leave again. Let's pray. Father, this is a battle of of our minds because what we see What encounters us is brokenness and lies. A people that want nothing to do with you. So many of us will go to the polls this coming Tuesday, casting ballots with grief in our hearts. Yet that grief is tempered with hope because you reign. And we praise you that you do. Thank you that you have justly worked on our behalf through the person of your Son and that in Him we have real peace, real help, and real hope. You are our leader. You are our Savior. And in You we trust. Help us be a people who proclaim Your terms of peace, inviting people in to partake of the mountain that is over all and that will ultimately overcome every obstacle. Thank you that you have caught us up into your family. Thank you that your tabernacling presence is over us, that we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace at any time to find timely help in need. We celebrate our Savior, King, who does not break bruised reeds, who does not blow out faintly burning wicks, Encourage our hearts today in Him. Through Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom, 
and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.